You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy. Natural gas. Energy infrastructure. Solar power. Wind turbines. If we're talking about getting to net zero emissions by 2050, I think that means we're going to have to shut down most or all of the fossil gas system. I think that people who are like, we can't build clean energy without burning fossil fuels, are fundamentally missing the transition that's happening in the energy sector and our ability to electrify a lot of end uses. For February 21st, 2024, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. Decarbonizing the entire U.S. economy is a huge task, one that extends far beyond merely switching to renewables for electricity and EVs for mobility. We also need to decarbonize heavy industry, as we discussed previously in episode 127, and buildings, as we discussed in episode 217, and we need to tackle emissions from various land uses, and that's just for starters. But achieving these carbon reductions requires much more than identifying specific sources of emissions and specific substitutes for them. As I've said many times on this show, technology is not really the main problem, nor does the mere existence of a technology solution mean it will be implemented. The biggest and most intractable hurdles to the energy transition are about human arrangements, not technologies. While the Biden administration and Democratic lawmakers were able to make trillions of dollars available, both directly and indirectly, to spend on energy transition solutions in 2022 via the IJA, IRA, and CHIPS laws, the reality is that most of that money cannot actually be mobilized without the willing participation of local, municipal, and state actors of all sorts. Elected officials, of course, but also regulators, agency staffers, community and business leaders, and more. Only with their support can decarbonization solutions actually be implemented. As the report we'll be discussing today put it in the executive summary, quote, individuals, businesses, and organizations across all sectors of the economy will have to work with government to implement, adapt, and expand on existing local, state, and federal climate and energy policies, end quote. Yes, the funding is critical and the technologies are essential, but that's just the ante. To really succeed, we need to understand how to overcome all sorts of risks that can hinder the progress of decarbonization efforts, like execution risk, technological risk, political risk, judicial risk, social polarization risk, and risks that come from outside the energy system. And if all that sounds like policy wonkery that's not nearly as fun as thinking about novel technologies, it is. It's also an absolutely essential and unavoidable aspect of the energy transition, one that we too often forget about precisely because it's not a fun, sexy technology story. But if we want the energy transition to succeed, and not just succeed but also deliver a whole host of other benefits, like justice, equity, health, jobs, and sustainability writ large, we must understand what the barriers to implementation are and what sorts of policies and programs are needed to keep the U.S. on track to achieving net zero. So today we're going to crack open that topic with a look at a massive new report from the National Academies published at the end of last year that details the risks, barriers, and productive approaches to policies and programs that can accelerate the decarbonization of the entire U.S. economy. We're going to focus on the energy-related portions of the report in this conversation, but we're also going to acknowledge the enormous scope of the entire report. And we're very lucky to have as our guide none other than Sue Tierney, 
an expert with decades of experience on energy and environmental economics, regulation, and policy, particularly in the electric and gas industries. Sue needs no introduction to those who have worked in the energy sector in the U.S. But just to name a few of her bona fides, she has been the Assistant Secretary for Policy at the U.S. Department of Energy, the Secretary of Environmental Affairs, Commissioner at the Department of Public Utilities, and Head of the State's Energy Facilities Siting Council in Massachusetts. She is the chair of the Board of Resources for the Future and National Academies Board on Energy and Environmental Systems. She was a member of the National Academies Committee on Accelerating Decarbonization in the U.S. and the Committee on the Future of Electric Power. And she serves on the boards of various NGOs and foundations. She's a real veteran of the energy transition who I have admired for years, and I'm thrilled that she was willing to come on the show to discuss some of the sections she led in this report. Then in the news segment, for the first time in almost a year, we're going to have another edition of our occasional feature, Coal Death Watch. And now, our conversation with Sue Tierney, recorded January 29th, 2024. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Sue, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks, Chris. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. I've had you on my list for a long time, and so I'm really glad we could finally have this conversation. You have such an extensive wealth of experience and knowledge about energy policy in the U.S., and especially with grid matters. I almost wish that we could just talk about all that today, but perhaps we can draw on your institutional knowledge a bit as we discuss some of the core concepts of the report we are here to discuss today. And that is a report from the National Academies published last year titled Accelerating Decarbonization in the United States, Technology, Policy, and Societal Dimensions. Now, this is a huge 652-page report reflecting the work of multiple teams comprising dozens of contributors and dozens of reviewers, supported by numerous major foundations and funds, and describes in detail all the ways that the U.S. can decarbonize its economy, and there are a lot of them. So I just want to acknowledge right off the bat that today we're only going to touch on four of the 10 major themes in this report and a small subset of the roughly 80 policy recommendations that it makes. And I want to encourage those who are interested in the full scope of decarbonization strategies in the U.S. to go to our website and click through to the full report and check that out because it's absolutely packed with information. But Briefly, before we get into the material, I wonder if you'd like to sort of describe the history and purpose of this report, as well as your own role in producing it. Well, thanks for that invitation. And let me start by saying that a couple of years ago, the presidents of the three national academies identified climate change as one of society's toughest challenges and that they wanted to consider work in this area as a priority. And the Academy staff raised funds from foundations, as you mentioned, for a comprehensive study of what it would take to get the nation on a path to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. The work started of a committee at the beginning of 2020. And I remember our first meeting together was the last meeting that took place at the National Academies before the doors shut for the pandemic. It was pretty weird. Right. It was very weird. Yeah. So we started work and knew that we wanted to get a report out by the beginning of 2021 because we knew there would be elections in Congress and the presidency. And we wanted to consider what kind of federal action could be timed with those new events and new players in Washington. And we focused on federal action as part of this 
formula of what it would take to reach net zero by mid-century. Our second report was always intended to be more fulsome. The first one we had to finish in a year, which is very fast for an academy study. And the second one really was a two-year effort by a committee of maybe almost two dozen people. This was to extend the scope of the first report so that it wasn't just on federal action, but it was also what's going on at the states, what's happening to workforce issues, public health, land use, all things related to a carbon reduction transition. And I was a member of the committee throughout this and helped to draft both reports. I should mention that these are pretty amazing studies. This is a very unusual one. There were members of the committee that came from so many different disciplines. There were economists, engineers, public health experts, land use experts, architects, sociologists, and more. And the idea was to be able to talk about both the technological dimensions, but also these societal dimensions. And it was very cool. The members of the committee rely on each other and their expertise. We know that the thing will be peer reviewed. And at the end of the day, we all have to sign off on the whole report if we're going to be part of it. And so Mm. that's what we did. And what was your role in this? The way it tends to work is that there are either one or two lead authors of each chapter. And I got a couple of the chapters to play that role on, but we all are the authors of the whole things. My own focus of attention tended to be on the electric sector. That's where I spend most of my time. There's a chapter on the fossil fuel sector as an industry. And there's a chapter on the finance sector. And so I was heavily involved in drafting those pieces. Great. Well, thanks for the background on that. I mean, the multidisciplinary nature of this report definitely shines through as you're reading through it. It does come across as not your standard sort of consultancy or one practice team kind of report. (laughs) There's a lot of different elements in here. And in fact, the themes of equity and social matters are really just sort of woven through the entire thing in, in a way that sort of stood out to me. Well, I'm glad that that did come across as a a core theme, and maybe we'll talk further about why the committee chose to look at equity in addition to the, the economic and technological changes that need to happen. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the report. The four major themes that I want to explore with you today are accelerating the integration of renewable electricity, reforms for interstate transmission, targets for buildings and transport, and managing the future of the fossil fuel sector. So to start with the first one, integrating more renewable electricity, I think that's a subject that most of our listeners would probably feel like they already know quite a lot about. But what I loved about this chapter of the report, titled The Essential Role of Clean Electricity, is that it put the focus where I think it belongs, on the next phase of cleaning up the power grid. I'll quote here from that chapter summary, quote, In addition to continuing to invest federal funds on research and development of advanced technologies, greater attention to these non-technological issues is essential for the electric system transitions needed for affordable, reliable, and equitable decarbonization outcomes, end quote. But 
Because, as we've emphasized repeatedly, especially in recent shows like episode 211, although we still need incremental improvement in zero-carbon generation and storage technologies, the main challenges in transforming the U.S. power grid into a dispatchable, reliable, zero-carbon state are not really technological, are they? Well, certainly there's technology elements. We want to make sure that the engineers are involved here. But really, the social science, the political, the legal, the public engagement aspect of these transitions are showstoppers if those issues are not solved. And so this is kind of like a simultaneous equation. Of course, we have to have the engineering right, but we have to get those other parts of it right as well. So we said that these non-technical features really affect almost every aspect of the transition. Certainly, when we think about citing new electric transmission lines on the bulk power system, To talk about public participation is to underscore how incredibly important that is to make sure that the siting processes really build on robust public engagement strategies so that people understand what the options are, that they understand that there are benefits that flow across different regions. So public engagement and decision-making support technical assistance are really important to make sure that we can expand the wholesale grid and we can support the expansion of wholesale markets that are going to be needed for a system that's going to depend increasingly on renewable energy. So that's one example. Another example is just much more local. Clearly, people are well aware that the transition that we're involved in right now involves a lot of people being interested in and already putting PV solar on their rooftops. But in order for the distribution system to handle more and more of such on-site generation, the systems have to be upgraded in terms of their communications, their controls, how you interconnect different local facilities to the grid. And that is all necessary in order to make sure that the lights stay on, even as people are going off grid for a number of hours of the day and for different uses. Let me just mention one more thing here. And that is that if we don't price electricity in ways that are different in the future than we traditionally have, then we are going to have a system which is probably going to have to be built in a bigger way, more capacity on the grid, more expense added to support that capacity. If people don't see price signals associated with the movement up and down of different kinds of technologies supplying services to the grid and people being able to shift their own battery storage capability or electric vehicle usage of the grid in ways that are really smart. And so innovative pricing has begun to take place in some regions, but that really needs to take place in a much more aggressive way, frankly, before long. So in addition to the need for state actors to, for example, make it easier to site transmission lines, there's a lot of work that you just identified there that needs to be done by distribution system operators and utilities, right? That's exactly right. And in fact, the thing that kept popping out in my mind as you were just speaking was rate design, rate design, rate design. (laughs) 
That is so right. And a lot of the discussions about rate design today end up saying, well, we can't really do this or that because there's a lot of people who are not really aware and able to modify their usage on the system. And certainly there's concern to make sure that low-income electricity consumers continue to have access to clean and affordable electricity. But there's ways to do that. There are many ways to assure that with different kinds of rate designs, everybody has a chance to have access to the grid, but that there can be a lot of different kind of creative usage and tariff design and more work is needed in this area and an accelerated pace in the next years ahead. Yeah, and in fact, in previous shows, we've talked about like the work that I did at RMI on making it easier to deploy high-speed public charging infrastructure for EVs. A lot of that came down to rate design. It came down to getting demand charge relief for these operators of these high-speed public charging stations. And a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about there with interconnection and so on for distribution level assets for DERs, as we often call them. We've done a number of shows with Lorenzo Kristov recently talking about his concepts for a community bill of rights, as he calls it, which would give priority access to customer resources and other DERs so that 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 now becomes sort of in the driver's seat for the expansion of grid assets rather than always asking the utility to do everything and then just sort of bolting on whatever the customer wants to do after that. Well, Chris, you know, as well as anybody, that when you think about rate design and you think about the duck curves and lots of different names for these curves of the grid have to respond to the sun going down and having other than PV solar providing resources to the grid, you don't want all of your EV charging to begin right then as well. And so that we need to send signals to consumers to move the malleable kinds of uses so that there's not a tension between what consumers want in terms of affordable energy and certainly reliable energy and the cost shape over the course of a day. Yeah, exactly. A topic that came up repeatedly in our conversation about VPPs with Jigger Shaw a year ago. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, as the report points out, the IJA and the IRA laws of 2022 provided billions of dollars of incentives to encourage clean energy investment and project development that will come to fruition over the coming decade. There's funding for just about every kind of grid power technology there is, including over $50 billion in the IAJA and more than $400 billion in the IRA. And that is definitely going to give a huge boost to clean electricity generation and storage systems and accelerate the progress of the U.S. grid toward net zero, in large part by drawing on co-investment from the private sector. And we detailed a lot of that spending authorization in episode 207. But again, the report notes that the potential gains from these incentives will, quote, depend to a large degree on resolving persistent non-technological challenges. Because a lot of the work that has to be done to upgrade and clean up the grid has to be done within state and local jurisdictions, doesn't it? That's absolutely right. And the Academy's report spends a lot of time talking about these truly, quote, tenacious, unquote, non-technological and non-technical issues. These are institutional, they are jurisdictional, they are information gaps, 
that exist for many types of communities. There are market structures that don't necessarily favor or even have a level playing field for some types of clean energy resources. The interconnection queues have long queues in some instances. Yeah. So I could go on and on about the kinds of things that we talk about, which are very tough and thorny problems. And there do need to be difficult conversations. There are lots of different conversations going on, but there need to be hard decisions made to plow through some of these things. And one of the examples would be almost the institutional mismatch that exists between the boundaries of electrical regions and the boundaries of states. And every state really with the exception maybe of Alaska, Hawaii, and Texas, every state really depends upon other states nearby for power supply and power exports. And the electrical system is quite dynamic. And so thinking about how to allocate costs, how to think about benefits of systems that are truly interstate in nature really needs to move to a different 21st century understanding of where our electricity system needs to go. Yeah. And again, the question of market structures, which is also closely related to the question of rate design, plays a very strong role here, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I guess what comes through to me here is that another way of saying that these are not technological issues is saying that these are human issues. These are problems of the way that humans have agreed to do things or to work together or to not work together. And a lot of it comes down to culture and precedent and so on. And in that sense, a lot of these problems, as intractable as they may look, are really sort of arbitrary. I mean, they're problems that we've chosen to have. Interesting observation. Yes, these are the human problems and their business models, their the precedent of going back decades and decades and decades. And yet the world of today and tomorrow, the kinds of changes that need to happen are unprecedented. We built our system over 100 years and the energy transition, which is what you've been focusing your attention on for hundreds of shows is really something that is accelerating at such a different pace than we've had in the past. So we need to be innovative. We do talk about this in the report. And frankly, I was involved in another National Academies report, which I'll just highlight it. And that's called the Future of Power in the U.S. And we really do spend a lot of time talking about the cultural changes and the business model changes and the human changes that need to happen so that regulatory decision-making is not so siloed on one-off issue after another, that it doesn't take so long to make decisions, and that we don't just rely on looking back, but we look ahead and take some risks that really are necessary in order to get ready for the things that are happening at a pace that really needs to move quickly. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. 
When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And for this episode's news segment, we now return to our ever-popular occasional feature, Cold Death Watch! Item 1. One of the largest coal plants in the U.S. will soon be replaced by its largest solar farm. On New Year's Eve 2023, Excel Energy shut down one of three power generating units at Sherburne County Generating Station, Minnesota's largest power plant. The other two units are scheduled to be closed in 2026 and 2030. By 2030, the company plans to exit coal generation entirely. The 2.2 gigawatt plant, more commonly known as Sherco, is among the biggest coal-fired power plants in the Midwest and is Minnesota's largest source of carbon emissions, releasing around 10.5 million metric tons of carbon emissions in 2022. Excel is replacing the coal plant with a 710-megawatt solar farm, which would make it the largest solar farm in the U.S. The first 460 megawatts are currently being installed, and another 250-megawatt array is awaiting permit approval. The solar plant would also host a 10-megawatt battery storage demonstration project by Form Energy. The retiring coal unit will be converted to a synchronous condenser that will be used to maintain system inertia. Separately, Excel announced last year that it was planning to retire its 598-megawatt Allen S. King coal plant on the Minnesota-Wisconsin border in 2028 and replace it with 650 megawatts of solar located in Wisconsin. Both installations will repurpose the coal plant's existing grid connections for the replacement solar farms. Item 2. Those who listened to episode 198 on how West Virginia's political leadership led its people into a coal trap, forcing them to bear high costs for remaining dependent on coal and miss out on the benefits of cheaper solar power, will be interested to know that a handful of solar and battery storage projects are finally getting built. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show. Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant. And Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.